Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and before we get into the episode, um, I just want to take a brief second to put out a reminder that all of our episodes are organized by subspecialty um, on headmirror.com on our, on our website. And as we're approaching almost 200 episodes now, this can help if you're trying to systematically study a topic. Let's say you want to systematically study otology. Uh, if you go on headmirror.com, it's all organized in otology or in rhinology or whatever subspecialty. And so that can help organize your studies and you can listen directly off of the website as well. So um, sometimes it's hard to keep everything organized on the podcast apps, um, whether Android or Apple. So just thought I'd throw that out there. This episode, we're going to be talking about auditory outcomes and rehabilitation for adult patients um, who undergo cochlear implantation. Just uh, by way of introduction, it's good. Um, just want to remind you that we did do a, a adult CI, adult cochlear implantation episode that covers just all the fundamentals of adult CI um, some time ago by Dr. Carlson. And so be sure to check out that one if you haven't uh, tuned into that one first. But without further ado, uh, today, we're going to be talking about, um, as I just mentioned, the adult rehab and outcomes with neurotologist uh, Dr. Aaron Moberly. So, Dr. Moberly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to start by setting the stage with trying to contextualize why we're even getting into this, and, and maybe perhaps the best place to start is, um, could you just give us an overview of the expected outcomes following cochlear implantation, just, just a thousand foot view? Does everybody who get, gets a cochlear implant have the same outcome, or how do we think about variability there? Yeah, so a really interesting aspect of cochlear implantation in adults is even in people who have relatively similar hearing histories and duration and degree of hearing loss, we see these really broad outcome variability. Um, and, you know, if you look across studies, um, within the first six to 12 months after cochlear implantation, the average sentence recognition score, and that tends to be what we use as sort of a measure of outcome is around 75 to 80%. Um, now that's in quiet conditions. So if you add noise to the situation, it's even, even worse overall, but the range of performance is really from about zero to hundred percent. So even if you have people that on the surface look very similar in terms of their hearing history, they may end up with very different outcomes after cochlear implantation. And keep in mind, this is also including... A, a relatively um, tight group of when we talk about these patients, postlingually deafened adults. So these are patients who developed relatively normal speech and language skills uh, as children and into their teenage years, and then they have progressive hearing losses, typically starting in adulthood. So even with that group, you see this vast variability in outcomes um, after cochlear implantation. Maybe touching on that a little bit more, when we think about the typical profiles, you said the average. Um at about a year, people get about mid-70s, so you can think that's a, a bar park for a, um, sentence scores in quiet. I guess, can you help us just, wh where are the average um, recipients, CI recipients starting out, and then just to contextualize where they end up a year later, or things like that? Yeah, so so you know, typically when we do our, our pre-op evaluation for cochlear implant candidacy, uh, and this is a good thing to learn about in residency and in a fellowship, is uh, we test people in the best aided conditions. So we put them with, with hearing aids, um, either their hearing aids that are refit for them kind of to maximize performance or some loaner hearing aids in the clinic. And you're playing speech materials, typically sentences. We used to use materials called the hint sentences. And now we use something called AZ bio, which is a little more challenging. It's, it's several different talkers across male and female genders. 
um, and they're more complicated sentences. And um, you're you're testing people in their best data conditions. And most people, so to to qualify from a, a Medicare CMS uh, standpoint, you have to score forty percent or less. But really, um, across the board, most people are usually scoring fifteen or ten percent uh, correct words and sentences before surgery. And within about six to twelve months, you start to see them plateau around seventy to eighty percent. When we think about who might do very well with the CI or who might do poorly, um, what are some of the clinical features of patients that you think help prognosticate these uh, features? Yeah, so this is a really interesting topic, and I, this is kind of what led me into my research focus, which is really trying to explain and predict outcome variability in this patient population. And what we find is across uh, studies, even very large studies that are multi-institutional, the, uh, the factors that we have from, from a clinical and demographic standpoint are really weak predictors of outcomes. So they, they're important sort of, but they don't give you a very, um, a very clear idea of how well someone's going to do. That being said, so age tends to be one. We, we know that younger adults overall tend to do a little better than older adults, but that's a pretty small uh, a fraction of the outcome variability is explained by age. Duration of hearing loss. So people that have shorter duration of severe to profound hearing loss tend to do better, and it probably has something to do with their auditory system still being overall in better shape. So you provide input through an implant and they're going to do a little bit better. The severity of the hearing loss, along with the duration of the hearing loss, those seem to be important. Etiology to some degree, you know, most of our progressive hearing losses, people tend to do pretty well with a cochlear implant, but things like uh, meningitis, um, obviously they're kind of set up for, for a worse outcome. The problem is with all of these clinical and demographic type of factors, if you throw them all together, they only explain maybe 20 to 30% of the outcome variability. So that means if you have a patient in the clinic, that 20 to 30% um, explanatory power of how they're going to do with an implant doesn't mean that much. Um, so you can't take an older gentleman who's 69, let's say, and has 30 years of hearing loss with an etiology of presbycusis and maybe noise-induced hearing loss. You can't really use those factors and say, here's what we expect you to do on uh, post-operative testing. So, you know, my interest is really trying to identify more auditory, cognitive, and linguistic measures that seem to predict outcomes so that we can come up with a battery of assessment tools to better predict performance for these patients and better counsel them. But the bottom line is what we have currently, these demographic and clinical factors just are not all that helpful in helping us to provide a good um, expectation for a patient or a good uh, answer when they say, well, how well am I going to do with my cochlear implant? What about different device characteristics? I understand, you know, there's different number of electrodes used by different companies, things like that. How, how much do you think those uh, factors play a role. Yeah. So interestingly, there's been a little bit of improvement. You know, if you look over the last 20 to 30 years, as the implants get better, performance has drifted up. But I would I would argue that's really been sort of a drift. Uh, it has not been an exponential growth in terms of performance. So even as you add electrodes or you make changes to these arrays so that they're, you know, lateral wall versus perimedialar or the softer insertions and all these things that we care about very much as surgeons, I think it's relatively small impact in terms of overall performance. Um, that being said, those things are important. So the placement of the electrode, you want to make sure you keep it within the scala uh, timpani on insertion. Um, the 
the less trauma you cause to the cochlea on insertion, the better the patient is going to do. We know that these perimedialar arrays in general, people tend to do a tiny bit better than they do with lateral wall because you're able to stimulate the nerve a little bit more discreetly um, or distinctly across the electrodes. But again, these are relatively small percentage of the variability that's explained by these different factors. So obviously as surgeons, we want to maximize how, um, how effectively we're placing the electrode and how atraumatically we're placing it. But really when it comes to a speech perception outcome standpoint, um, those are relatively limited in their, uh, their impact. One follow-up question on that. When you say keeping the electrode within the scale of timpani, what's the downside of over-insertion? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple, you know, one, I think there's some evidence, you know, if you do over fully, fully over insert, then probably the biggest problem is you are causing trauma to the apex. So as you, as you wind around the cochlea, that scale of tympany becomes smaller. And at some point it's too small to successfully place an electrode array and keep it within the scale of tympany. So you start to traumatize the cochlear membranes, you get mixing of perilymph and endolymph, which probably just really kind of tears up the entire cochlea. So as you traumatize that cochlea with deeper insertion, a um, couple of things happen. One is you're traumatizing the, the substrate, the neural substrate and the, the residual function of the cochlea. You're also getting to a point where you can't very distinctly um, stimulate at the apex because all the electrodes are really crowded together. So there's some limitations to how well you can stimulate the apex. Now, some of the, one of the companies in particular would probably argue with that, but the reality is those really deep insertions, those apical electrodes don't tend to provide very high spectral resolution, probably because there's this crowding of electrodes na- uh, near the apex. Um, related to this a- apex idea. So with there being a, you know, a candidacy criteria specifically for the hybrid uh, electrode length. And then obviously, of course, still a number of folks in planning with conventional length electrodes for the same indication. Um, How do you think about outcomes and patients that, um, you know, hybrid versus conventional length electrodes and this idea of preservation of um, um, some of that natural acoustic hearing for patients? Yeah, I think it's, it's a tough spot. Um, it's a very exciting area. And I think as we become more and more able to really guarantee that we're, we're saving low frequency hearing when we insert these electrodes, it's going to become more popular. One of the worries that I have, and I, I hear this from other surgeons too, it kind of depends on how aggressive you are, I guess I would say. Um, a lot of these patients that have these low frequency residual hearing and high frequency losses, that's a very common um, audiological finding with presbycusis, noise-induced hearing loss, genetic hearing loss. I mean, most forms of hearing loss, we see some degree of low frequency hearing preserved. The issue is, especially in adults, most of these people have progressive hearing losses. So if they're in their 50s or 60s and they have a lot of low frequency residual hearing, but you implant them and then in 15 or 20 years, they lose that low frequency hearing. Where are you with that? And so I think there's some debate. Um, I mean, it's an ongoing debate that's been going on for several years, especially since the, the shorter hybrid electrodes were developed. Um, are you better off trying to put a longer, more traditional length electrode in so that in case that hearing either drops from surgery, which is still a potential issue, or it drops over time from progressive hearing loss that you still have reasonably uh, extensive cochlear coverage so that your your electrode array is in far enough that you can still stimulate sufficiently even if the hearing is lost. So 
I don't know. I'm, I'm quite selective in terms of the patients that I think we should actually use a shorter electrode array. Now there's more circumstances where you use a traditional electrode array, but you're trying to use a, a soft insertion technique and an electrode array that's pretty flimsy so that maybe you luck out and you, you save some of that low frequency hearing and they're able to use it for an extensive amount of time, but you still kind of expect over time that, that hearing to decline with, you know, as their hearing loss progresses over time. That's sort of my perspective. Shifting gears a little bit here, I think the temptation, that, you know, especially reading the literature and, and things, is to focus in on outcomes as it's related to um, speech reception or speech recognition um, post-CI. But how do we think about quality of life improvements, just the practical day-to-day change for patients? Um, are those discordant or similar between the speech recognition results, or how do we think about that? Yeah, this is a great question. I think this is a really big issue is that we use these speech recognition types of tasks to determine candidacy, and then we use them to determine how well someone is doing. Uh, But there's been a lot of work recently, and in particular, I think Teddy McCracken's group has done quite a bit of this type of work. And we've done a little bit, but a number of groups um, internationally also that show these really poor correlations between speech recognition and self-report outcomes. And so it begs the question, well, what is it that we should be treating as our main outcomes of interest? And speech perception or speech recognition is obviously easy, relatively easy to collect in the clinic. We're kind of used to doing these types of measures for candidacy. It makes sense to, to use them for outcome measures as well. But then all these studies coming out that show that self-report quality of life is not strongly related to speech recognition is kind of concerning. Um And it opens up a question, should we be broadening the types of outcomes that we're assessing? I would argue yes. And um, do we need to include things beyond just speech perception in how we think about outcomes? And uh, again, I would think that that's a very important thing for us to be doing. Um, And people are looking into additional types of measures. You know, there's localization of sound, there's environmental sound perception, there's listening effort, which is actually hard to measure accurately in the lab or the clinic. Um, Things like social isolation and depression, all of these things are probably, or or in some cases we know they're impacted by cochlear implantation. So how do we assess them better from a clinical standpoint, I think is a huge direction that we need to be um, be moving to, to get beyond just thinking about speech recognition. Shifting now to talking a little bit more about rehabilitation after um, CI surgery, I think oftentimes it can especially as a trainee, you think, oh, everything surrounds that put in the CI, but but really there's a lot of work for the patient to be done afterwards and from a, um, a professional side in terms of how we help the the patient. I guess starting off with that, um, you mentioned technology has changed quite a bit over the last several decades. Do we think our rehabilitation strategies have paralleled their, their evolution over time or or maybe not? I would say yes and no. So I think, you know, okay, when we talk about rehabilitation, let me step back for a second. Um, One framework, there's a lot of ways to look at rehabilitation, auditory rehabilitation or oral rehabilitation, people call it. Um, One model that I think is really good that's been around for a while is from a guy named Arthur Boothroyd, who's been working on rehab stuff for since the 80s, maybe before. Um, And he has he breaks us down into sort of four areas of focus for rehab. Uh, This includes sensory management. When we talk about sensory management, we're talking about devices. We're talking about hearing aids and cochlear implants. So providing that input through a device, more or less. 
instruction. So instruction is sort of helping someone understand how to use their devices effectively, in what circumstances, when to use accessories, that sort of stuff. Counseling, which I think fits a little bit more into the idea of how do people uh, figure out their listening environments and situate themselves in places where they're going to be able to com communicate as well as possible. So for example, if you're in a noisy restaurant, put yourself next to the person that you're going to spend most of your time with and make sure you can see their lips as you're speaking, that sort of thing. Um, and then the fourth part is really perceptual training or auditory training. Um, and these are exercises that listeners can do with their cochlear implant or with a hearing aid to try to train their brain to better use the input. I would say probably the area that has improved the most, so obviously sensory management as the devices improve and accessories improve, that has that has built up over the last few years. When it comes to training, um, there are certainly more and more um, approaches that people have developed to help with training. So these are these tend to be computerized training programs, often developed or um, provided, sometimes sold by the implant companies that are listening exercises people do at home or they do over the phone or they do on their own phone to try to do listening exercises and get feedback and improve their performance. What I would say is even though there's there's been a number of these um, techniques that have been developed, they're relatively understudied. So we still don't really know which of these types of approaches to training are going to be most impactful. From a very high level, do you try to train people on very basic sounds of speech or do you try to train them in noisy situations with long sentences where they're able to try to use context to figure it out. Even to that level, we don't know which is the best way to train people. It's probably a combination. We don't know if you have a hearing aid still on the other ear. Are you better off trying to train someone to listen with their cochlear implant, let's say their new implant, plus their hearing aid? Or do you have them drop the hearing aid and not use it for a while so that you're, you're kind of forcing the brain to listen to the implant? We don't know. Um, so there's a lot of these things that have been developed and people play around with them and, and try them and, and encourage their patients to use them. But we really don't have a strong uh, idea of what is most effective or even dosage. You know, when we talk about dosage of medications here, dosage of training is an issue. So can you do training intensively for two weeks and get benefit or do you need to do it for several months? All these things are really wide open still. So from that standpoint, I would say we have a long way to go to really figure out what's the most effective way to rehabilitate people after they actually get their cochlear implants. Postoperatively, what is a typical timeline? If you just take a traditional CI um, patient, what does their first 12 months post-CI look like in terms of like how many office visits do they end up having with the audiologist or SLP or some different members, things like that. What what does that look like for most patients? Yeah, I would say um, our center is a little unique. We've we've tried to to develop something where we include the SLP fairly early on. I'll come back to that in a second. But the typical thing that's very common among programs would be, you know, you see the patient preoperatively, you see them as the surgeon postoperatively, and then about a month, well, somewhere between two and four weeks, typically post, uh, postoperatively is when their activation is done. And then they typically come back about two weeks after to remap and mapping is really, um, you know, the audiologists are the experts in this, but you're essentially kind of setting threshold levels so that you're identifying for each electrode across the electrode array, what's comfortable level or what is just, uh, barely, um, 
accessible to the patient. So when can they just barely hear it? And as they adjust to those thresholds, their dynamic range improves a little bit, meaning you can sort of spread out the amount of stimulation from maximum comfort level down to just barely perceptible. And that takes some time. So there's this accommodation period. So you're having the patients come in um, two weeks, then usually another month and then a couple of months and then six months and then 12 months. So, you know, initially it's quite intensive from a standpoint of programming. So there you're trying to adjust each, each electrode to, for appropriate thresholds for that listener. Um, and you're also doing uh, frequency allocation where you're taking the, the, um, the whole frequency range and assigning it to the electrodes from the basal turn, which is high frequency, all the way down to the apex, which is low frequency. Um, so there are multiple sessions with the audiologist where they're both remapping, but they're also reiterating use of accessories, mini mics, and things that people can use to try to improve their performance with, you know, in daily life. On top of that, then um, we've been encouraging having our patients see a speech pathologist. Uh, typically we, they do an initial evaluation before surgery. This includes some language and cognitive evaluation and also expectations discussions and, um, things to sort of get people oriented to, well, what are, what are they supposed to be expecting after, after surgery and after, after activation? And then about a month after activation, we have them come in and see the SLP ideally once every week or two weeks for, several sessions, you know, whether that's a month or a couple months, it depends on the patient and sort of their progress. The idea there is to sort of de develop a tailored approach to the rehabilitation and the, the speech, um, the, the auditory training and the therapy um, that these individual patients are doing at home as practice um, to try to keep them on board, keep them um, kind of focused on the rehab process, keep them engaged in it, and also to continue to answer questions and, and troubleshoot some of the device stuff that comes up. So from, from our standpoint, having a comprehensive approach to rehabilitation really helps or should help us to optimize the outcomes, especially for these older folks who could use some more assistance. One of the things I've read about from your group um, that I thought was just kind of interesting surrounds some of the reimbursement challenges in this whole arena of surrounding rehabilitation. Do you mind just speaking to that? And because I mean, bringing up the SLP, it's not, especially in adults, not a traditional um, area that you know they've we've involved them on. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one big topic, and this has been an issue for years, is that there's very limited reimbursement for audiologists to do focused auditory rehab. So when it comes to remapping and programming and diagnostic testing, even speech testing, these are all things that CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers tend to cover. And, and you can bill for those and get reimbursed. When it comes to spending time specifically on rehabilitation um, outside of those things, um, CMS really does not reimburse that for audiologists, which is a big issue. And it's been that way for years. Uh, in contrast, the speech therapists or speech pathologists have some codes that they can use that are more rehabilitation. They're communication codes, communication rehabilitation. There's some cognitive codes that they can also uh, potentially bill for. And most of the time, these are actually getting reimbursed, even from Medicare. So, um, you know, that's something that probably, you know, is state based in terms of what those what that protocol looks like and what can get reimbursed. But we've had some good success where, you know, these are getting reimbursed for our speech therapists. So 
that in and of itself, it's not necessarily a great reason to incorporate speech pathologists. Um, but it's, it's the reality is, you know, this has to be a sustainable type of program. And so being, being able to get reimbursed through that is important. You mentioned earlier that some of those patient factors could account for mainly, maybe only up to 20 to 30% of the variability we see in post-operative outcomes with CIs. We talked a little bit about, you know, some different technological aspects. How much of an influence do you think, um, this rehabilitation component plays in post-operative variability? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, the the one measure across the board that I've seen to be a, a the strongest predictor of outcome so far is sort of the cochlear health at the time of implantation. And this is, you know, my partner, Oliver Dunka has done a lot of work on this with um, others around the country. And that uh, accounts for about 50% of the outcome variability, at least with word recognition. So it's sort of the, what's the neural substrate that you're implanting and how healthy is that peripheral auditory system? Um, so we know that plays a big role. So it's very, you know, this sort of, I call it bottom up. A lot of people call it this, but it's sort of the sensory aspect of it is very important. How good is the signal that's coming in? But the other 50% or something up towards that is really more of a top-down issue. And top-down meaning how does the brain contribute to the ability to understand speech through a cochlear implant? So you've got both the bottom-up sensory stuff and the top-down cognitive stuff. And I think that incorporates other things like aging and neurocognitive functions and language functions, um, things that are not just solely related to how well is the device sending a signal up to the brain. Um, and, you know, I think that's providing another 25 to 50% of the outcome variabilities from that end. So then the question is, if you have a big chunk of that variability that's related to sort of top-down brain functions, can you rehabilitate that? Um, and can you do things through rehabilitation training that help to optimize performance on that top-down side? And that's much trickier. Um, so for example, let's say you have some cognitive deficit that is directly contributing to poor performance with a cochlear implant. Can you go in and actually train that function? Let's say it's um, working memory capacity. And it's plus minus in the literature across the, you know, across other areas of whether you can directly train working memory capacity. I don't know. Um, and I think it would be unfair to say that that's the case. However, you may be able to, to help the patient develop strategies to uh, make up for the fact or compensate for the fact that they have poor working memory capacity. So you could get them performing better through some other means, through rehabilitation. So at a very high level, I think if you, if you know that the brain is contributing some percentage of variability in outcomes, then focusing on treatment that's related to the brain's use of that input uh, that's coming through the cochlear implant just at a very high level makes a lot of sense. Getting it to a point where we can do that effectively and identify which deficits need to be compensated or which deficits need to be trained, uh, we're definitely farther away from being able to do that. In your practice, how much are you finding patient motivation playing into all of this? It's a great question. And I think it's one of the things is it's very hard to measure. And we have, we've actually spent some time trying to find good measures of motivation and they're tricky. They're very, you know, it's specific motivation to interest in, you know, seeking out auditory care and interest in sticking with your device. And there's something called grit that people have talked about, but we don't have really good measures of these things. Um, that being said, and I think this would 
resonate probably with any surgeon or audiologist or speech therapist is you see these patients that come in that are highly motivated and they just tend to do well or they stick with it until they show improvements. Um, now, once in a while, those are also the most frustrated patients because if they're not doing well, they get very frustrated by that. But there is there is certainly an element of the, of encouraging those patients to really stick with the process. Like another side of that, I think that's important is we're seeing more and more studies, uh, not a huge number, but a, a number that's growing of of the outcomes relate to how much people are using their devices. So I think that's sort of a a stick to itiveness, you know, how much are they using their devices? There's a neat study that just came out from Holder and Gifford at, at, at Nashville that they actually encouraged their patients they, through a study to increase their duration of use of their CIs. And those patients who actually use their devices more um, throughout the week actually showed some improvements in performance. Not hugely dramatic, but they were significant improvements. So that, you know, there's something that has to do with people's willingness to stick with it and work through it that leads to better, better outcomes. And I don't know if that's just motivation, if it's just auditory input, having, having that device on longer, um, it's very unclear, but certainly there's an element, this sort of intangible motivation aspect that certainly plays a role. With the FDA approving the indication for single-sided deafness in 2019, I just wanted to ask you, how, how do your thoughts on this rehabilitation process um, change in the, this unique subset of patients? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's there's a lot more that we don't know. I think there's a ton that we don't know about rehabilitation for traditional CI users. And then when you come to single-sided deafness, it's, it, it's even further um, sort of outside what we know. So, you know, a couple aspects here are most of these patients either have a normal hearing ear or an, an ear with some degree of hearing loss that's aided with a, a traditional hearing aid. So you're trying to get them to use a lot of acoustic hearing in one ear and a cochlear implant on the other ear. And that's where, you know, one of the situations we really don't know how to re rehabilitate these patients from a standpoint of, do you have them go out into the world and listen with both? Or do you force them to use the CI ear for a while? Um, how, how do people integrate that information? And if you look at the studies, there's always a handful of people, maybe not always, but I pick up when reading these studies of single decided deafness CI patients of the people that don't seem to do well with it. And I think it has something to do with some people just really cannot integrate the acoustic input and the CI input for some reason. Maybe that's a cognitive issue. Maybe it's an aging issue. I don't know. Maybe it's a mismatch from a frequency standpoint. But regardless, we don't really know how to rehabilitate those people. The other issue is thinking about outcomes. So for single-sided deafness, um, just testing people for speech perception and quiet uh, doesn't make sense because they have a good ear or they have a relatively good ear. And that's that's not where they're struggling. So they're struggling in noise where the noise and the speech are coming from different areas. They're struggling with localization of sound. So to even assess those outcomes in the clinic, you actually need different types of setups. You need to be able to present sound and noise uh, from different speakers. You need to have some sort of setup to look at localization of sound. Um, you know, those are sort of two areas. Uh, and quality of life, you know, how are we actually assessing how these people are uh, accepting their devices and how how much are they actually glad that they got the device? And, you know, overall, people tend to to be glad that they went forward with it across these studies that have been done the past 10 to 15 years. But um, again, there's a big range in outcome and outcome performance 
Um, and you know, why is that? What is it that explains why some people really do well and some people don't? So I think that's, as we're doing more of these, these same issues are coming up about, well, what is it that explains why some people do really well and some people don't? All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up most of the um, questions I had for you, but were there any other aspects, things that we didn't touch on that you think are worth mentioning right now? No, I think that's a pretty good overview. I think we touched on a lot of the the current issues that, that are unresolved. And uh, obviously there's a lot of work to be done to figure out some of these things. Well, Dr. Moberly, thanks so much for your time and um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, I'll now uh, move on to the summary portion of the episode. Um, this episode, we really tried to do a, a, a deeper dive into the topic of adult cochlear implantation and focus on the uh, expected outcomes and really the variety or the, the widespread breadth of outcomes that can be seen and then um, talk a little bit about rehabilitation and what that looks like. One of the main takeaways of the episode is just appreciating that when we put in a cochlear implant, it's not we don't expect everybody's going to get eighty percent speech rec- uh, uh, sentence recognition postoperatively at one year. It's it's actually quite variable what the outcomes um, are, and the the modern cochlear implant can't candidates, um, there's been a couple studies on this, but really most patients are presenting with monosyllabic word and sentence recognition under 10%. Um, there's been a couple studies that show that and really highlights how patients have been waiting years with their with qualifying severity of hearing loss before under before getting their device. Um, at, a, at a year, patients, the average or the median score for word and sentence recognition are about 60 and 75% respectively. So the sentence recognition being the, the target one about uh, at, a, at about a year, most patients or the median is about 75% um, sentence recognition. Large range on that. One of a, a recent large uh, tertiary referral center studies had a ra- an interquartile range of about 50 to 90%. So a significant variability there, lots of different uh, factors, both patient and other factors that seem to influence device out, uh, performance outcomes. Some of the strongest ones to just be mindful of from a patient standpoint are preoperative degree of uh, hearing loss. So how much uh, hearing that they still have at time of implantation and then duration of def- deafness. However, as Dr. Moberly got into um, these types of patient factors can only account to, for up to maybe 30-ish percent of the outcome variability that we see. Talked a little bit about rehabilitation strategies and that after the cochlear implant surgery, really for the next year, there's substantial a number of visits for patients. There's all these different types of auditory training programs that they can um, participate in. And really the research is uh, ongoing and the jury's still out in terms of what program is best. But um, everyone agrees that it is extremely important for patients to be very active in this process and uh, take ownership of of their rehabilitation. And then talked a little bit about uh, how this is unique in single-sided deafness. We have a separate episode on this, of course, um, but just important to consider this recent expand, expanding criteria for um, cochlear implantation in adults and just how some of those elements differ um, quite a bit from the conventional candidates. All right. Um, for this episode, I'm just going to ask one question. Um, and the question is, what is the typical audiometric, audiometric profile for an adult cochlear implant um, candidate in terms of word and speech recognition? And at one year, what would be the expected outcome or the median outcome that you would counsel a patient on? So here... Um, like I had briefly mentioned earlier, a couple different studies inform these these data, but 
the audiometric profile for a, uh, an adult uh, cochlear implant candidate for monosyllabic word and sentence recognition are um, under 10% for both really um, at the time of implantation, which just speaks to the duration of deafness that most patients are experiencing prior to implantation. And then at about at one year, um, the median post-operative scores for sentence recognition are in the ballpark of about 75%. But um, as we talked about in the episode, really that range can be pretty substantial um, with the bulk of the range being between about 50 to 90%. But of course, there are people that unfortunately even perform worse than that. And, and fortunately, even though we have trouble predicting this, people that perform even better. So anyways, thanks so much for tuning in uh, and we'll catch you next time.